Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for November 21st through 27th, 2022. This is covering the book of Jonah and the book of Micah. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the scriptures. Oh, it's so nice to see them. Boy, scriptures, it's so fun to study you. (laughs) Now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 30 minutes, 54 seconds. Oh, this is one of the short ones. And what would it be daily? 4 minutes, 24 seconds. So easy to do. Here we've got time codes if you want to go chapter by chapter or buckle up and we'll talk about them all together. So let's start with the book of Jonah. Let's get our introduction from the seminary manual. It says, Although this book is clearly about the prophet Jonah, it was written by a later unknown author. Jonah, who was the son of Amittai, was from a town called Gethhefer in Zebulon, a territory in Israel. Jonah ministered and prophesied during the reign of Jeroboam II of Israel, which lasted from about 790 to 749 B.C., Unlike other prophetic books in the Old Testament, the book of Jonah is not a record of Jonah's prophecies, but a narrative about the prophet's experiences. The account contains details that appear to be exaggerations, which has raised questions for some readers about how much of the book is historical. Nevertheless, its literary elements make it a beautiful poem containing valuable lessons. Jesus Christ referred to Jonah's three days and nights in the belly of the whale as a sign of his death and resurrection. Jonah's actions may reflect the hostile feelings and attitudes some Israelites had toward the Gentiles. The book's testimony of God's mercy to the Ninevites echoes the messages of Old Testament prophets who taught of God's concern for people outside of Israel, and it foreshadows the future incorporation of Gentiles into the church in New Testament times. So let's keep in mind as we go forward, we've set the clock back. Among the 12 in this last part of the Old Testament, Jonah is actually one of the earliest, even predating Isaiah. So let's jump into Jonah chapter 1, and let's start with verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. Now, Nineveh is a major city of the Assyrians, who were the enemies of the Israelites. The Assyrians were known for their brutality, which included torturing and cruelly murdering the people they conquered. In fact, in a few decades after Jonah's preaching, Assyria would conquer the northern kingdom of Israel and scatter the ten tribes. And remember, Jonah was from the northern kingdom in Zebulun. Now, this conquering wouldn't happen yet, but it would soon. So, how would you feel? This is maybe the ultimate love your enemies scenario. And how? Let's go on in verse 3. But Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa. And he found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare thereof and went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 
The seminary manual tells us that Joppa is a city on the coast of Israel and that Tarshish may have been located in present-day Spain. So that's the other end of the Mediterranean Sea. We don't know exactly where Tarshish was, but if it was Spain, that could have been as much as a 2,000-mile journey by sea. This journey would probably have taken weeks. Now, that's a lot of effort to get away from what the Lord asked you to do. Mm -hmm. Let's keep going in verse 4. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. In the coming verses, the men of the ship feared they might perish in the storm. They believed Jonah was responsible after they cast lots, and they asked him why the storm had come upon them. Let's go back to the chapter, verse 10. Then were the men exceedingly afraid and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then said they unto him, What shall we do unto thee, that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. And he said unto them, Take me up and cast me forth into the sea. So shall the sea be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. So in the next few verses, the men reluctantly threw Jonah overboard. Once they had done so, the storm ceased. Going on in verse 17. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. The Institute Manual tells us the Hebrew word tanin used in Jonah and the Greek word katos used in the New Testament describe any sea creature of immense proportion. Sharks are common to the Mediterranean and have throats sufficiently large to admit the body of a man. Of course, the miraculous nature of this event lies in the fact that Jonah could survive in the digestive tract of a large fish for three days as much as in the fact that he could be swallowed whole. This brings us to our next chapter. In Jonah chapter 2, it contains a prayer Jonah offered while he was in the fish's belly. Let's take a look in verses 1 through 9 and look for phrases in Jonah's prayer that indicate his willingness to repent. Starting in verse 1. Then Jonah prayed unto the Lord his God out of the fish's belly, and said, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. For thou hadst cast me into the deep, in the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me about, all thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight, yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul, the depths closed me round about, the weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from corruption, O Lord my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So what happens when our arrogance and pride take us far out to sea and trap us in the proverbial belly of the great fish? 
it leads to humility and gratitude that the Lord didn't just let us drown. We remember the Lord. And then, as it says in verse 10, And the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. So Jonah received mercy. And what a mercy. And that takes us to Jonah chapter 3. Let's take a look in verse 1. And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey, and Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Can you imagine what this looks like? I don't know if he got cleaned up after being in a fish's belly, but he'd have to be looking pretty uh, remarkable. Right. And for him to stroll into this town and say, repent. Well, and this is a big city. One of the things I want to clarify, when it says that it was three days journey, it's not that it was three days journey from where Jonah was. It's three days journey across the city. It's a big place. Exactly right. Yeah. What a message. And to basically be walking into the middle of enemy territory and making that declaration. But at least he did it. I love that the Lord's instructions didn't change. He repeated what he had commanded him to do before, but this time, rather than running away, Jonah did it. So, after all this trouble to get the prophet to Nineveh, how did the people respond to the message? Let's pick it up in verse 5. So, the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. Now, let's take a look at verses 9 and 10, but let's insert the Joseph Smith translation. Who can tell if we will repent and turn unto God, but he will turn away from us his fierce anger, that we perish not? And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way and repented. And God turned away the evil that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did it not. The Come Follow Me manual includes this great message from President Dallin H. Oaks. This is from the October 2016 General Conference. He tells us, quote, We should never set ourselves up as judges of who is ready and who is not. The Lord knows the hearts of all his children, and if we pray for inspiration, he will help us find persons he knows to be in a preparation to hear the word, end quote. Yeah, we've probably all met people like that, or more likely, we have been those people. Well, I was going to say, this is certainly true of my missionary experience. Jay, this is probably true of yours too, and for others who are listening. But I've certainly been surprised sometimes when I've reached out to certain people that I just assumed would have nothing to do with the church, that were actually very interested in it and embraced it. Yep, very true. So, Jonah must have been overwhelmed with excitement and gratitude and love. Let's go on to the last chapter of Jonah, chapter 4, and take a look in verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. And he prayed unto the Lord and said, I pray thee, O Lord, was not this my saying when I was yet in my country? Therefore, I fled before unto Tarshish. 
For I knew that thou art a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness, and repentest thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Lord, take, I beseech thee, my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. What? (laughs) Now, notice that Jonah wanted to deny the people of Nineveh the Lord's mercy after he had just received that same blessing. Yes. Look at the traits he knows about God from verse 2. He is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, of great kindness. Repentest thee of the evil, which if you look at the footnotes, the Hebrew means relentest, meaning Jonah knew that God could revoke the calamity decreed, but expected he would do so even without the repentance of the people. Jonah was blessed by these attitudes when the Lord mercifully gave him a second chance. Jonah resented those attributes when the Lord gave the people of Nineveh a second chance. Now, the remainder of the chapter includes an object lesson of what the Lord taught Jonah about love and forgiveness. There are several items that are symbolic. To start with, we have a booth, as it mentions in verse 4 and 5, a gourd, This is some sort of large plant that could provide shade. The footnotes refer to it as a bean plant, as it mentions in verse 6. And a worm and wind, as it mentions in verse 7 and 8. So let's talk about that, starting in chapter 4, verse 4. Then said the Lord, Doest thou well to be angry? So let's pause a minute right here. That singular verse, Jonah chapter 4, verse 4, has been a favorite of mine for years. It is something that I'm confident the Lord has said to all of us at different times in our life. Doest thou well to be angry? To use a more modern phrasing, picture talk show host Dr. Phil saying, So, you're mad. How's that working for you? Too often, when we find ourselves angry... It is because we are placing our own will and desires above the Lord's will. It frustrates us because we somehow think we should be as knowledgeable and as wise as our Father in heaven. That is never true. This is a scripture that I printed out in large letters and placed in my office at work, but I positioned it so that it's facing me. It's a reminder that when I get angry or frustrated about something, how is that helping the situation? Is my will really aligned with the Lord's? I love this verse. Okay, back to Jonah chapter 4, going on in verse 5. So Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth and sat under it in the shadow till he might see what would become of the city. And the Lord God prepared a gourd and made it to come up over Jonah that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. But God prepared a worm when the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass when the sun did arise that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah, that he fainted and wished in himself to die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. And God said to Jonah, Doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Then said the Lord, Thou hast had pity on the gourd, for the which thou hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. 
And should not I spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left, and also much cattle? So the Lord helped Jonah understand that while Jonah had loved the gourd and was sad when it had withered, the Lord loved the people of Nineveh vastly more and did not want them to perish. The Lord was rebuking Jonah's lack of charity for the people of Nineveh. There's a wonderful and appropriate quote from Elder Dieter F. Uchtdorf. This is from the April 2012 General Conference. He says this, When it comes to hating, gossiping, ignoring, ridiculing, holding grudges, or wanting to cause harm, please apply the following. Stop it. (laughs) It's that simple. We simply have to stop judging others and replace judgmental thoughts and feelings with a heart full of love for God and his children. Because we all depend on the mercy of God, how can we deny to others any measure of the grace we so desperately desire for ourselves? The pure love of Christ can remove the scales of resentment and wrath from our eyes, allowing us to see others the way our Heavenly Father sees us, as flawed and imperfect mortals who have potential and worth far beyond our capacity to imagine. Because God loves us so much, we too must love and forgive each other. Love that quote. Yeah. Great stuff. It's so simple, but so difficult. Well, so that wraps up the account of Jonah. It's a great reminder of what we should be cautious about as we interact with others. Now let's move on to the next prophetic book, the book of Micah. Let's take our introduction from the seminary manual. It says this, Although we do not know who wrote this book, the book contains the prophecies of the prophet Micah. Micah was from Moresheth Gath, a small rural town in the kingdom of Judah. According to Micah 1.1, Micah prophesied during the reigns of the kings Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah of Judah, who ruled from about 740 to 697 BC. Therefore, he was likely a contemporary of the prophets Amos, Hosea, Jonah, and Isaiah. Micah addressed his words to the kingdoms of Judah and Israel. Micah ministered during a time when the people of Israel were thriving economically, but suffering spiritually. This environment allowed for the upper class to place increasing burdens upon the lower class. Micah was particularly concerned with the oppression of the poor by the wealthy, and he counted this injustice among Judah and Israel's greatest sins. Micah's origins from a small town may have given him special sensitivity to the concerns of the poor, rural people of the land. Micah is the only book in the Old Testament to name Bethlehem, a town little among the thousands of Judah, as the place where the Messiah would be born. Like the teachings of the prophet Isaiah, many of Micah's teachings are written in the style of Hebrew poetry. Micah's prophecy of Jerusalem's destruction was remembered many years later, during the time of Jeremiah. So in the first four chapters, Micah prophesied that Samaria and Judah would be destroyed because of the wickedness of the people. He also chastised false prophets who taught the people false doctrine. The Institute Manual gives us this neat insight— Micah used wordplay to pronounce an indictment against 
Judah. The technique is readily apparent in the Hebrew and can be appreciated in this more literal translation of Micah chapter 1, verses 10 through 14. Weep tears at Tear Town, or Bochum. Grovel in the dust at Dust Town, or Beth Ophrah. Fair forth stripped, O fair town, or safer. Stir town, Zeanan, dare not stir. So you can see right here, if you compare the literal translation to the King James, it reveals this play on the meaning of the names of the cities he's condemning. Like in verse 11, Pass ye away, thou inhabitant of Safer, having thy shame naked. But notice how, in the literal translation, it uses what the name means. Fairforth stripped, O fair town, talking about Safer. And then in the next part, the inhabitants of Zeanan came not forth in the morning. And in the literal translation, it says, Stir town, or Zeanan, dare not stir. So it's a really interesting play on words. Let's continue with that literal translation from the Institute Manual. Beth Ezel and Meroth hopes in vain, for doom descends from the Eternal to the very gates of Jerusalem, to horse and drive away, O horse town, or lakish, O source of Sion's sin, where the crimes of Israel center, O maiden Sion, you must part with Moresheth of Gath, and Israel's kings are ever balked at Bokhton, or Axib. The phrase, her wound is incurable, in verse 9, refers to the wickedness of the northern kingdom. The statement, it is come unto Judah, shows that the spiritual sickness had spread to the southern kingdom as well. So, Micah 4 records that the Lord gave Israel a message of hope that in the last days the Lord's temple would be built again and Israel would conquer its enemies. It also records that there will be peace for the Lord's people in the millennium. Let's take a quick look at Micah chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, starting in verse 1. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law shall go forth of Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now... Does that sound familiar? Yes, it does. Almost like we studied it earlier this year? Well, we did. If you look at the first few verses of Isaiah chapter 2, or of course 2 Nephi chapter 12, you'll find very similar text. Now, some might look at this and think, well, Micah quoted Isaiah. But did he? Or maybe Isaiah quoted Micah. Or maybe Isaiah and Micah quoted from a third prophet whose writings we don't have today. Or maybe Isaiah and Micah simply had a very similar vision of the last days. We really don't know for certain, but Micah and Isaiah clearly stand as two witnesses to the information contained in these verses. Keep an eye out for similar quoting as we read on. Well, that brings us to Micah chapter 5. As recorded in this chapter, Micah prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem and that in the last days the remnant of Jacob, Israel, would triumph over its oppressors. Let's pick it up in verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, 
Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is, to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. So wait, why did he call the city Bethlehem Ephratah? That last part, Ephratah, is just to distinguish the city of Bethlehem that's in Judah as opposed to, say, the Bethlehem that's in Zebulun. That's talked about in Joshua chapter 19, verse 15. The Institute Manual tells us, Ironically, this prophecy was used by some of the Jews to try to disprove that Jesus was the Messiah. Not knowing that he was born in Bethlehem, but thinking he was from Nazareth, these people cited Micah to show that Jesus could not be the Messiah. That's really interesting. Skipping to verse 4, And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall abide, for now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. Jumping to verse 8, And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the Gentiles in the midst of many people as a lion among the beasts of the forest, as a young lion among the flocks of sheep, who, if he go through, both treadeth down and teareth in pieces, and none can deliver. Thine hand shall be lifted up upon thine adversaries, and all thine enemies shall be cut off. Bruce R. McConkie, in his book, The Millennial Messiah, offers this insight, quote, These words of our Lord to the Nephites are quoted from Micah chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, and have reference to the desolations and ultimate burning that shall destroy the wicked at the second coming. The righteous, here called the remnant of Jacob, shall abide the day, and then, in the prophetic imagery, it will be as though the remnant of Israel overthrew their enemies as a young lion among the flocks of sheep. Close quote. Nice. Now, notice that Elder McConkie mentioned at the beginning of the quote that Jesus, our Lord, as he says, spoke to the Nephites but quoted Micah. The Come Follow Me manual points out that it is well known that the Savior quoted Isaiah and the Psalms. Did you know that he also quoted Micah several times? It then gives three examples. In 3 Nephi chapter 20, verses 18 through 20, Jesus quotes Micah chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. In 3 Nephi 21, verses 12 to 21, Jesus quotes Micah chapter 5, verses 8 through 15. And in Matthew chapter 10, verses 35 through 36, Jesus quotes Micah chapter 7, verses 5 through 7. Nice. Well, that brings us to Micah chapter 6, starting in verse 3. O my people, what have I done unto thee? And wherein have I wearied thee? Testify against me, for I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, and redeemed thee out of the house of servants, and I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Now that's a great perspective. What miracles has the Lord wrought in our lives, and how important will that be to remember them when we are weak and fearful? Let's go on to verse 6. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? In other words, how should I come before the Lord to worship him? Let's keep going in verse 7. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? 
Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He hath showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. In other words, if my outward acts of worship are very great in number or value, will these things be enough to please the Lord? The answer in verse 8 is something we've seen the prophets trying to teach the people throughout our studies. Do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. This had been taught ever since the law was first given. Remember back in Deuteronomy? Let's look at chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. And now, Israel, what doth the Lord thy God require of thee but to fear the Lord thy God, to walk in all his ways, and to love him, and to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statutes, which I command thee this day for thy good. Think about the things we do in the church today, attending church, partaking of the sacrament, attending the temple, reading the scriptures, singing hymns, praying, etc. How might we perform these acts of worship with all our hearts. Have you noticed a difference when you do, as opposed to just going through the motions? Is there something in your worship life that you need to do with more of your heart? Will you? In Micah chapter 6, verses 10 through 16, the Lord said he could not justly excuse the children of Israel because they continued in their wickedness. He then pronounced consequences that would come to them because of their sins. In particular, verse 16 calls out the statutes of Amri. The Institute Manual explains, Amri, king of Israel, the father of Ahab, was one of the worst kings the Israelites ever had, and Ahab followed in his wicked father's steps. The statutes of those kings were the very grossest idolatry. Jezebel, wife of the latter, and daughter of Ithobael, king of Tyre, had no fellow on earth. From her, Shakespeare seems to have drawn the character of Lady Macbeth, a woman like her prototype, mixed up of tigress and fiend, without addition. Omri, Ahab, and Jezebel were the models followed by the Israelites in the days of this prophet. Yikes. That brings us to Micah chapter 7. In verses 1 through 17, Micah continued to lament the wickedness of the Israelites and in the destruction that was coming because of their sins. However, Micah prophesied that Israel would turn to righteousness and rise again with the Lord's help and that other nations would be amazed at what the Lord had done for Israel. Let's take a look in verse 18. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because he delighteth in mercy. He will turn again. He will have compassion upon us. He will subdue our iniquities, and thou wilt cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. Thou wilt perform the truth of Jacob and the mercy to Abraham, which thou hast sworn unto our fathers from the days of old. In the October 2020 General Conference, Elder Dale G. Renlund taught us this, quote, 
Jesus Christ's sacrifice for sin and salvation from spiritual death are available to all who have such a broken heart and contrite spirit. A broken heart and contrite spirit prompt us to joyfully repent and try to become more like our Heavenly Father in Jesus Christ. As we do so, we receive the Savior's cleansing, healing, and strengthening power. We not only do justly and walk humbly with God, we also learn to love mercy the way that Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ do. God delights in mercy and does not begrudge its use. In Micah's words to Jehovah, Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity, will have compassion upon us, and will cast all sins into the depths of the sea? To love mercy as God does is inseparably connected to dealing justly with others and not mistreating them, end quote. That's so good. You know, we do still have people that look at the Old Testament and say, there is an unmerciful God, and that Jesus is almost like the counter to that in the New Testament. But I just don't see it. Time and time again, we've seen a God that pleads for his people, that shows mercy to them, which loves them, which has compassion upon them. And again, Micah makes that message so clear. And as a matter of fact, we had the illustration earlier with Jonah that it was actually Jonah who was not being merciful. But God was trying to teach him how to be merciful. Right. How is that a wrathful, vengeful God? Yeah. No, this is a loving God from the beginning who wants his children to do well, to be like him, to show mercy, love, and kindness to deal justly with others. What a great message. Indeed. What a wonderful study. Well, keep reading your scriptures, and we'll look forward to talking to you more about them in our next lesson. We'll see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but we're really big fans.